Well, good morning, House Church. I want to talk to you this morning about it. Let me change my voice inflection just a little bit. I want to talk to you this morning about it. God never says, don't be it, but he does tell us not to get weary going after it. Solomon, in fact, in his great wisdom, a lot of accumulated life experiences, he tells us that it can weary you. And if you glance at it, it can go away. In fact, a rich metaphor, he says, it can fly away like an eagle that sprouted wings and flies to the sky. Paul would say, it's not so much that you are it, it's that you're not doing a good job of being it. It can be so dangerous that it can sidetrack us and even plunge us into destruction and ruin. It is so important that God gives us reminders, instructions, and warnings. We're going to consider early followers of Jesus and what they had to say about it. And of course, we'll consider Jesus ultimately. But before that, before Jesus, Jim Carrey. I've always wanted to say that in church. Of course, that's chronological, not of priority or sequence. Here's Jim Carrey, and he said this one time after his rags to riches story. He says, I wish everyone could be rich and famous. It doesn't make you happy. I want everyone to know for themselves, it doesn't. Consider this morning the it of being rich. The it of being rich. I want to give you all a challenge, whether this morning it's reminder, instruction, or warning, or some combination of all three. I want to ask you to be open today to how God might remind you, instruct you, or warn you. And here's the challenge about it. I want to ask you to not be typical when it comes to being rich. Thursday night, Trustmark Park, six feet apart, I attended graduation for my high school daughter. In corona season 2020, we didn't know if this would happen. We were pretty confident she would graduate, right? C's get degrees. We were confident she would graduate, but what about the ceremony? I think my wife and I collectively got about 50 to 70, somewhere in between emails about the venue, about grad night. Would it be in May or June or July? Would it be downtown Jackson? Would it be at the school? Would it be indoor at the school, outdoor at the school? Finally, they decided on Thursday night, July, whatever that night was, 23rd or something, uh, outdoors at Trustmark Park. We took all the health and safety precautions. We were outdoors. We wore masks. We stayed six feet apart. Uh, We washed our hands. We didn't hug or handshake. We winked and smiled at everyone. And the students, my daughter, as I sat in the stands with my wife and two sons who are young men now, we watched my daughter and her tribe graduate. And it was very standard. Two great speakers spoke. Both graduates of the school have gone on to have glowing success. I'm sure they'll never invite me to speak at a graduation ceremony. But these two successful people spoke. And then it was time for the graduates to walk across the stage to get their degrees. Decrees. And then um, when, I don't know, about halfway through, a young man named Reed Kellum. No one saw this coming. I don't even know if his parents did. Now, Reed has aunts and uncles and cousins at Fondren Church. Reed, a graduating senior, out of nowhere, pulls a baseball bat from his robe, throws up a pitch, a baseball, and knocks it out of the park. 
I, it didn't really get uh, quite a reaction. I remember looking at my wife and smiling, going, that's my guy right there. Like, I like that. That's very atypical. And even though it didn't get much of a reaction at Trustmark Park, guess what? Reed Kellum, for his antics, made Sports Center. He made Sports Center. You don't get on Sports Center if you just walk across the stage and receive your diploma, shake a hand, and have your picture taken. But apparently, you make Sports Center if you pull a baseball bat out of your robe, pitch to yourself, and knock it out of the park. Now, I appreciate Reed. I know the young man. I appreciate his gumption. Uh, I would have. If I'd have tried it myself, I would have whiffed, but he went yard. Just the sound of the aluminum bat hitting the leather ball and going over uh, to the other side of Pearl was a beautiful sound and feeling, and it makes me, made me want sports again. Are you with me, House Church, this morning? But here's what I want to say about, a, about being typical. If you want typical people, if you want what typical, I'm sorry, if you want what typical people have financially, then do what typical people do. But if you want what few people have financially, then do what few people do. The best-selling book of all time has the best advice. I challenge anyone to challenge me on this, but the best-selling book of all time has the best financial advice that you can ever get. I have seen someone come to faith in Jesus because of what Jesus talked about this very Thing. This person, brilliant, PhD, amazing intellect, had seen some rags to riches in their own life, and it was the Jesus' teaching on money which points us to our heart, which probes and penetrates deep to who we are. Listen, the Bible speaks to us about earning and spending, giving and saving, investing and even wasting this it, this thing called money, our financial resources. Would you accept the challenge today? If you want to have what typical people have financially, then do what typical people do. But if you want to have what few people have financially, do what few people do. Slow down. I'm not preaching any prosperity theology today, but let's ask what do typical people have? Debt, piles of debt, stress and toll and great strain, paycheck to paycheck. What does it mean to have it and to be rich? Here's what I hope some of you will think about today after watching this service, that you will walk away with a thought of, man, he talked about it from 1 Timothy. And you know what? Paul to Timothy is right. Though AD 62, 63, or 64, he's right in 2020. He's right amidst all of this in this time of our lives. Do you want to be typical? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll look just at a few verses, uh, 17, 18, and 19. Here's what Paul, the older mentor, says to Timothy, the young mentee. He says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The question, when you see the first phrase, command those, oh, let's keep going, command them to do good, but to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Can you see the influence of Jesus there if you know Matthew 6? So that they may take hold of the life 
that is truly life. Do you get the, what's implicit in that? There is a life that we can think is life, and it can be cotton candy at the fair. It seems to satisfy, it says it's good, but it's really not good. There is a life that we go after, but it's not really life. Remember, this is First Timothy's all about an older person mentoring a younger person. Wish I knew that sooner. I want to tell you why you're young. I want to tell you why you're young so that you can get this right. So back up to the first part of this phrase. Let's unpack it a bit. Command those who are rich. It begs the question, doesn't it? Who is rich? America, by most estimates, comprises about 6% of the world's population. 6%. Yet we consume about 40%, almost 40% of all the world's consumer goods. Remember, we're answering the question, who is rich? Because the rich here have been given a command. Before we get to the command, let's see, let's ask who are the rich. If you make, if your household, if you and your spouse or who you live with, if it's joint, if you make more than $1,500 a year, then you are in the top 30% of the world's population staggering to consider who is rich let me ask you do you feel rich there's a great gap between being rich and feeling rich I remember my first job actually my second job because my first job the entrepreneurial spirit took root in me when I was about 14 years old and I started a lawn mowing business. It didn't go well when I didn't diversify my portfolio. All I did was cut grass. People wanted to weed eat and edge and all that other landscaping type stuff. I just wanted to mow grass. I made a decent living at 14 and 15 working and saving to get a Jeep CJ7 Cherokee that I um, adored for and drove for a few years. But my first job job where I got a paycheck was working at a big store, big star grocery store. This was in the 70s in Starkville, Mississippi. And I can, to this day, I don't know if anyone can share this, but to this day, I remember getting my first paycheck. I remember the feeling, any guesses of what the feeling was? I felt like I was rich. I felt rich. In fact, looking back all those years ago, I have never felt as rich as I did then problem why obviously I have made so much more but to answer that it is that word more it's that I've made more and I look around and see that other people have more and that I need more and then I compare myself to people who have more and that feeling though so fleeting so long ago in my early teenage years that first paycheck I felt like I had won the lottery. I felt like I was the richest person in the world. Are you rich? I want to ask you, in light of a little bit that I've taught over these past couple of minutes, to reframe and rethink your answer to that question, are are you rich? Look, if you want to be typical, if you want to have what people, typical people have financially, then do what typical people do financially. But if you want to be different, if you want to not be typical with your finances, then do what few people do. So command those who are rich. What's the first idea here? Command those who are rich, what? Not to be arrogant. How many of you are monopoly players? One of the 
I think it's one of the top five uh, best-selling board games of all time. Kind of funny, sociologists, academia folks have actually studied people who play Monopoly. There's actually research on people who play Monopoly and the effect of playing with fake money has on people. And let me ask you before we get further into this Monopoly illustration, you ever, have you ever known somebody who they got some money and it changed them? Do you know anybody that way? They got some money, whatever level, and it changed them. I think we all know somebody that, like that. Anyway, they, you, when you play Monopoly, most of you know that you uh, start off uh, equal and then someone takes the lead. And a lot of times in Monopoly, someone is it's a kind of ga- a game where you can gain momentum, you can gather steam. And in studies that they've done, they've seen that people who, again, they start equal, but someone gets some money and then at first they feel awkward. They feel awkward that they have more than other people have. The awkward is sort of a, a feeling of guilt. They feel guilty about that. But then over time in playing Monopoly, they start taunting other players and moving pieces loudly. Can you imagine that fake money, playing with fake money, people can become jerks? It's why we are warned, if you're rich, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Money can change us. Oh, it changes other people. It's not going to change me, Lord. I know money won't make me happy, but give me the opportunity to show it for myself, to prove it in my own life. Oh, it's not going to change me. The good examples are few and far between. I want to show you a picture of a woman. Uh, Her name is Marian Anderson. This is in her youth. She uh, She gained worldwide acclaim. She didn't come from much, but she gained worldwide acclaim as a concert singer. She was the as they said at the time, the first Negro in 1958 to sing at the Metropolitan Opera in New York in 1955. In 1958, she was a delegate at the United Nations General Assembly. In 1959, she sang in a private ceremony uh, at the White House with the Roosevelts and the Queen of England. She also, um, back in 1962, she sang uh, in Washington, D.C., in the shadows of the Lincoln Memorial, and before her was a worldwide audience, also the President of the United States at the time, everyone in his cabinet, all the Supreme Court justices, and most members of Congress. She was asked later in her life, what was the greatest moment of your life? What did she say? She was awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom. I failed to mention that. What was it? What was the greatest moment of her life? Here's what Marian Anderson said. She said, the greatest moment of my life was when I went home and told my mother that she doesn't have to take in wash anymore. The greatest moment. You see, here's an example. Again, there's so few and far between, but here's an example of a great woman. Motivated by her faith, she did not forget where she came from. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 51.1. He says this, I, I wonder if you've heard this before. It's so good. Look to the rock. Now, rarely does the Bible tell us to look back, but look to the rock. Here's, a, here's an example. It's a good one. It's a wise one. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, no one really talks about, talks this way today. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. The King James Version says you were pulled up out of a pit. Look to the pit where you came from. 
Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, not to be conceited. What can money do to us? Don't forget where you came. Here's what the gospel teaches us. I believe it with all, our, with all my heart. We teach it at Fondry. We want, it, we want you to feel it when you come into this room. But we teach this, that grace is needed by everybody and that everybody has come from a pit. Everybody needs to look back and see what God has done where you've been rescued, where you have been delivered. What's your pit? It's hard to be puffed up when you know what your pit is. For Moses, it was murder. For Elijah, it was depression. For Samuel, it was lust. For Peter, it was denial. For Thomas, it was doubt. For Jacob, it was deception. For Rahab, it was prostitution. It's hard to be puffed up when you know you've been brought from a pit. Command those who are rich to not be conceited. And then what does Paul tell Timothy? He tells them next this very idea, and this gets to the deep part of your heart, to not put their hope in wealth. Back in 2016, I was flying home. I had a long international flight. I was in a a foreign city and was looking to get the right seat on a plane. I was weary, and some of you who know me very, very well, you're going to laugh when I say this, but I was, I was spent, and I was, I was done with people. You, those who know me, I'm like, you've probably never seen me done with people. I love people. COVID-19, been very hard for me. I like crowds. I like people. I like to be with people. I like the joy and revelry and raucous nature of lots and lots of people. But this time in 2016, I remember it so well, I was done. And so I requested a window seat. Why did I want a window seat? Any guesses on this long seven to eight hour flight back to America? I wanted a window seat so I could nestle into that seat and not be bothered and I could go to sleep. No people, just me and sleep. So I prayed, God, I know you love me. I ask that you provide for me a window seat. The gate agent called the boarding pass, my name with 21A. Thank you, Jesus. I have a window seat. I boarded and nestled into my seat. Lo and behold, a man taps me on the shoulder just before takeoff. And he says, sir, I hate to bother you, but would you be willing, I'm traveling with a friend, would you be willing, this straight from the pit of hell, to switch seats with me? And I just, I mean, I was, again, I was spent, tears came to my eyes. I thought, there's no way he's going to know I'm a pastor, okay? So this is just a secret. No one's going to see this. Tears came to my eyes. I looked as he began to explain the situation and his request. I looked, and the, the seat that I would switch to was what? Middle section, middle seat, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He knew I was reluctant. He knew I was experiencing pain with this decision. So he said, look, here's what I'll do. I'll offer you $100 if you'll switch. And in that moment, if you ever have one of these, just a Holy Spirit convicting moment, I mean, boy, what a moment of conviction from God. And it was as if God was whispering to me, Robert, Robert, do the right thing. And so I did what I thought was the right thing. I took his money and I switched seats. Hey, listen, how often, how often does privilege and desire and selfishness get the better of you? Do you want to be typical or do you want to be 
atypical. Look, it's not about getting on Sports Center like my friend Reed Kellum did Thursday night, but it's about playing to an audience of one. What level of importance do you place on personal comfort, safety, and security? Look at a proverb, Proverbs 18, and it says this. I love the language of good poetry, but just great beauty here. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine a wall too high to scale. You can make money and start making more money and your imagination can play tricks on you where you think you can build an unscalable city. And it happens all the time. And it's why at every turn we can look at the elite. We can look at Hollywood celebrities and fancy smancy CEOs and uh, athletes signing the big contracts and time and time again we see people who think because of this in their imagination they can build an unscalable wall they can have comfort safety and security and here's what happens back up a little bit when Paul tells Timothy to command those instruct those who are rich not to be arrogant there are few Marian Andersons in the world it seems one study showed they looked at pedestrian stop in Kansas City, Missouri. Smart researchers. And they made observations about what type of people stop for pedestrians. And what would you guess? Would it be people who drive the luxury automobiles or just normal cars? They found that people who drive luxury automobiles were four times less likely to let people walk across the streets we can begin to have a feeling of entitlement. You and I like to think we're different. God bless me, God bless me, and when you bless me, I will give so much in return. Do you know the if I have money or when I get money, I will give money doesn't work? It just doesn't, oh, I'm I'm different preacher, I'm different. It doesn't work. People who study this can tell you it doesn't work. Command those who are rich, reframe and rethink today if you are rich. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth. Hear me now, hear me now. You cannot build an unscalable city. If you think that you can count on it and you can cling to it, you will find unhappiness at the end of it. Let's go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus in Mark 12. Mark 12, Jesus is at the end of it. He's at the end of his life and his ministry. It's a time in Jerusalem where he's not just at the temple, he's at the temple treasury. About 1,200 square feet, scholars estimate, there's a temple treasury. And Jesus was people watching with his disciples. How many of you, show of hands at the house church, how many of you enjoy people watching? Remember 1 Samuel 16, God, you know, people look at the, at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I think we see this in display in Mark 12. We see people looking at the outward. They were watching people, making observations, and listening to the money noise. And Jesus is looking at the heart. Consider Mark 12. We'll look at a few verses here. Verse 21. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd, people watching, putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. How would you know? How would you know that rich people were throwing in large amounts. Back then, there was no paper money. It was all coins, so gold, silver, bronze, and copper. 
People brought their coins. Some of them brought bags. And so I should have brought for illustrative purposes, but picture a, a large container in the temple treasury where people would put their coins. And people would walk in, and if you had five, what would be in our day worth, you know, $500, it would have a pretty good sound to it. If you brought 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or lo and behold, 50,000. And what would happen many times, people, you can see this in Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about giving, praying, and fasting, not to be seen by other people. Some people do that. They do it to be seen. It was easy back then. And so they would come and they would drop a load. Some of them, some of the rich would drop a load and it sounded good. And they garnered even more respect, whether they were flaunting or taunting their wealth or being seen in a good, compassionate, religious light. See, that's bound up in the human heart. Verse 42, Jesus goes on with the story. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Just like Jesus, he tells a story and people are talking about it 2,000 years later. This woman was humble. She was haggardly. She lived alone. She was in many ways the outcast. And she brought in a mite. Just the phrase, the widow's mite, has become a popular in common vernacular today. A mite was the smallest denomination of money in the Roman world. And Jesus wants his disciples and you and me to see something different. Because when it comes to it, when we wear ourselves out trying to get it, when we glance at it and it goes away and sprouts wings like an eagle and flies up to the sky, when it leads so many into passive destruction and perils of ruin, Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know that we don't even know how to measure it. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, there's a lesson here. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Do you know Matthew is there with Jesus? Do you know what Matthew did for a living? He was a CPA. He knew advanced calculus. Matthew was a tax collector. And I imagine Matthew thinking, Jesus, okay, I've been following you. I love the miracles, water into wine, the demon possession, you know, the demons being cast out, the people being healed, the sight being restored to the blind, the lame being able to walk, all these great miracles. Jesus can do anything, everything, but maybe not math. You see, money, your money is never about math. It's about your heart. And Jesus wants us to see this verse 44 will end here they all gave out of their wealth but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on you see jesus knows not only the amount but he knows the percentage and he knows the heart you know what attracts attention today large amounts you know it gets headline news the big big donations but Jesus is saying that our generosity is not measured by the amount. Well, that's different. Generosity, your generosity and my generosity is not measured by the amount, but by the percentage. You know this fundamental concept that God gave early on to his people. It's the practice of tithe. The practice of the tithe. Some say when Jesus came, he did away with it. It's grace giving. 
I have said that if you believe in grace giving, then Jesus would want you to give more than a tithe. It's why around here we talk about tithes and offerings. The tithe is training wheels. It's not the tour de France. And so the tithe is, as a preacher friend of mine says, man, if we don't give the tithe, we're robbing God. Well, those hard words to hear this morning, to give the first fruits, to take 10 off the top and give to him. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus had an opportunity to go, ah, don't tithe anymore. It's about justice and love and mercy and walking with God. But Jesus said, you do this while neglecting this. And Jesus had this great opportunity to say, don't do this, just do this. But Jesus said, do this and do this. In other words, trust God with your resources. And do not, as we say here often, give him the leftovers. Your leftovers and mine doesn't honor God. So there are a few things that you can do with your money. In my hands now are 10 dollars, 10 one dollar bills. I'm not a good poker player or card player. I'll try to show you most of them if you're watching at home, but here are, here's 10 dollars. Here's what I believe strongly that the scripture teaches us, both old and new and for us today, is when you get 10, you take one. And that one first is given to God as an act of worship. And then Here's a good practice that Susan and I have done our whole marriage. We, remember the Bible talks about earning and spending, saving and giving, investing and wasting money. We take another percentage, 10%. Here, in this case, it would be a dollar. And we save it. It's wise to do that. Do you know that it's wise to do that? Do you know that if you don't save, you won't have opportunities to be generous as, in the way that First Timothy goes on to talk about? And then, remember, it's not about math. But here is what we live on. Can we trust God to be able to do this? Think about what you can do with your money. Uh, You can't argue this, but there are only five things that you can do with your money. You can do one of the five or all of the five. You can spend it, pay debt, pay taxes, save it, or give. You're probably thinking, I'm going to stump the preacher here and think of something else. You're not. These are the five categories, but think about it when it comes to the recipient or the benefactor of doing these. If you spend it, let's put the next slide up. If you spend it, that's about me. If you pay debt, that's about me. Uh, If you pay taxes, that's about we. That's to pave our potholes and roads, right? That's why we pay taxes. If you save it, that again is about me. And giving the direct benefactor there, beneficiary, is God. But what we do is we get our check and we spend it. If you want to be typical, do what typical people do. And you spend it and you spend it and we start there. But you can pay debt then or you can pay taxes. You kind of have to do that. Or then if I have something left over, I'll save it. And then at last resort, I give it. I want to challenge you today to consider flipping the order. To think about not being typical. Now, I understand that there is a, a, a prevailing sentiment today. It's always existed. The church is just about money. Ever thought that? Ever, ever thought that? Here's what I love about this letter that we've been reading. I told our staff this week on the third floor, First Timothy is so much about integrity. It's why when we talked about leadership from First Timothy 2 a few weeks ago, I talked about how leadership in the church starts at home, how we need to invest in our integrity and how we need to seek to serve. First Timothy chapter 6, if you have an open Bible, you can look to make sure I'm being honest. But First Timothy 6 verse 4 and 5, 
5 says that some people use religion as a way to get rich. Ouch. Listen to me. It is true. Some people, some very ungodly leaders, Jesus would refer to them as wolves in sheep's clothing. They are preying on people and a lack of integrity and leadership hurts people badly. And though it is a reality that some use religion to get rich, listen to me. The church is not about the money. And let me, ready for this, strong words, let me prove it to you. You ready? Be open just for a moment. Let me prove it to you. We open our doors and the reality is that most people don't give. Most people don't. That's typical. If you give systematically, sacrificially at any level, you're atypical. Most people don't give. You know what we don't do? We never send a collection agency to your home. We never mail a monthly itemized list of Fondren Church Kids Ministry, Fondren Church Student Ministry Pizza. You owe $20 because your kid ate $20 worth of pizza. We never do that. We never send Rudy with a wiffle ball bat to your door to collect the money that you owe us. And we never close our doors to anybody that comes. If you've been blessed by an inspiring message or even a harder message like today, been challenged by it, you don't have to give. We don't close our doors to anybody. But try that this week when you're out shopping. Go try to buy some shoes or clothes or auto parts and don't pay and see what happens. Are you with me? You see, business is about the money and you have consumers. Church is about ministry and you have worshipers. So when I talk to you today, this is a challenge to as an act of worship. So as we close and as our team comes to lead us in a closing song, I wanna ask you to repeat after me as I say this out loud, okay? Are you with me, church? Even if you're in your pajamas, half-dressed, barely dressed, say this after me. I was born buck naked. I will die empty-handed. One more time. I was born buck naked. I will die empty-handed. In between... I will manage God's stuff. I was born, let me do it by myself. I was born buck naked. I will die empty handed. And in between, I will manage God's stuff. I hope that you have been challenged by this message. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. So what's the answer? Be generous, be rich, share your good with other. And can I tell you, the world desperately needs generous people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Lord, I pray that you help us wrestle with it. Even if we have to go down to the mat and give and receive some body blows as we wrestle, not with me, God, but with you. Because you don't need our money, you don't want in our pockets, you want our heart. You want a fully yielded life. And there is nothing that grips us, nothing that strains and stresses us 
like our needs, like our financial pain, like the load of debt, like the worry of uncertainty about tomorrow. But God, you will provide because money doesn't feel what we feel. Money doesn't hurt when we hurt. Money doesn't rejoice when we rejoice or weep when we weep. But God, you do and you promise more. And for every cotton candy, sweet syrupy, false promise of money, Lord, you are the God who is worthy to be worshiped. Father, thank you. Though hard, you are providing. Let your generosity flow through your people in Jesus. Amen.